Good morning again. If we've not met yet, my name is Mitchell Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. And as always, it is a joy and a privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you turn to Matthew chapter 15? After breaking for the season of Advent and Christmas, we now come back to the Gospel of Matthew. If you're new to Trinity, we've been in this Gospel for about a year and a half now. And throughout this Gospel, we've seen what we are supposed to see in the Gospels. Jesus Christ. We've seen the amazing fact that Jesus is God and the flesh, as we just celebrated at Christmas. That the eternal Son of God has taken on humanity and was born as a baby. He is the long-awaited Messiah who has come to save His people from their sins. And some of you will be able to remember back to our very first sermon in Matthew when we looked at Matthew 16 and the question that Jesus puts to His disciples. If you remember, they're telling Him all the different theories there are out there about who Jesus is. And in the midst of it, Jesus turns the question back to them. He says to them, but who do you say that I am? And what we've seen throughout this gospel is that Jesus puts that question to each one of us as well. That is the call to discipleship. Who do you say that Jesus is? And what will you do in response to that truth? The identity of Jesus, who he is and what he has come to do, and the response of discipleship. These have been the two themes throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is the King, and the proper response to the King is to repent, to turn from our rebellion and our sin and come to Him. It's to lay down your heavy burdens and to come to your Savior for rest. But as we've seen those two themes of Jesus' identity and that right response, we've also seen throughout the Gospel those who do not respond to Him in faith and repentance. And ever since chapter 9 of Matthew, that role of opposition has been primarily filled by the Pharisees. They've accused Jesus of blasphemy, of breaking God's law, of being empowered even by Satan. They reject His identity as the true King. And so instead of worshiping Him and following Him, They are determined to destroy him. And today, we come to another place that the Pharisees question and attempt to corner Jesus. Like many of their other questions, this is a question about the law and what Jesus believes about God's law. But Jesus turns the question around on them. He exposes the fact that they value their own traditions and rituals more than the Word of God and true righteousness. And in doing so, he teaches his disciples and he teaches us why what the Pharisees are saying is so dangerous. Because the truth is, their traditions don't just strike at the authority of God's word, although they do. They also distract us from the danger of real sin and from the true cleansing that Jesus has come to bring. So this morning, we are going to hear the words of Jesus warning us about these blind guides, but ultimately comforting us with the cleansing that he has come to bring. But before we hear the word of God, 
Let's go to him and ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and come to Jesus. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1 and going through verse 20. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. This is the word of the Lord. As we look at this passage today, we're going to look at it in two parts. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 9, the traditions of men that the Pharisees have their eye on and the commandments of God that Jesus brings their attention to. Then in verses 10 through 20, we'll see what Jesus says in answer to their question about the true source of defilement. The section begins with the Pharisees making the 90-mile trek from Jerusalem to Galilee to ask Jesus another one of their accusatory questions. The question they ask is this, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Notice that the question again centers on Jesus' relationship with the law. This is what they've asked time and time again, from their concern that he eats with tax collectors and sinners, to their gotcha question about whether or not it's okay to heal on the Sabbath. 
But this time, they don't ask about the law itself. Instead, they accuse Jesus of teaching his disciples to break the tradition of the elders. And that, rather than the question, is what Jesus addresses first. He'll come back to the question about washing hands later on in verse 10, but he focuses on these traditions that the Pharisees hold in such high regard. Let's read again verses 3 through 9 to see how Jesus responds to them. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This face-off is very much like the other disputes that we've had seen, that we have seen, and that we're going to continue to see between Jesus and the Pharisees. The common theme is that the Pharisees come to Jesus in arrogance, that they understand God's law. They are the gatekeepers of Israel when it comes to the law. And they're checking to see if Jesus passes their test. And each time, Jesus responds in such a way to show that they don't actually understand God's law. But instead, they have perverted it and twisted it for their own gain. Remember, this is how the Sermon on the Mount began. Jesus, from the beginning, addresses what he believes about God's law. He says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. No one values God's law more than Jesus. Remember, he is God. He is the one who gave the law to Israel. It was his idea. He hasn't come to abolish God's law, but to fulfill it, both in his actions and in his correct interpretation of it. So remember, he went on in the Sermon on the Mount to show that he is the true interpreter of God's law. He understands it completely. He is the one who has the ultimate authority to tell us what it means to obey God's law, what true, complete righteousness looks like. And in that teaching, he also exposed how the Pharisees had actually shortened God's law. They've come up with ways of pretending to be rigorous, but in fact, those are actually ways of avoiding obedience to the heart of God's law. And that's exactly what Jesus shows us here again. The key phrase that Jesus hones in on is this phrase, the tradition of the elders. The Pharisees don't explicitly say that Jesus and his disciples are breaking God's law, but to them, the tradition of the elders is equivalent to God's law. This tradition was oral teaching. It was teaching that wasn't written down at first, but it was passed down by word of mouth. 
And this teaching explained God's law more fully, and it also added things to God's law to protect God's people from breaking it. The Pharisees believed that this extra teaching was given by God to Moses alongside the law on Mount Sinai. And then it was passed down from Moses throughout the generations all through Israel. Some of you may have heard of the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a text that was written down later, about the 2nd century AD, that contains this oral tradition. And in the very first paragraph of the Mishnah, it says where they believed this tradition came from. It says, Moses received the law from Sinai and committed it to Joshua, and Joshua to the elders, and the elders to the prophets, and the prophets committed it to the men of the great synagogue. They said three things, be deliberate in judgment, raise up many disciples, and make a fence around the law. The Pharisees believed that they were the keepers of this tradition, but that it was ultimately given by God alongside the written law. Jesus makes it clear immediately that he does not agree with them about the authority of this oral tradition. In verses 3 and 6, he calls it your tradition to the Pharisees. And then he turns the question back around on them. They accuse him of degrading God's law because he won't teach their tradition. But he turns the same accusation back on them. He asks, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus is showing that they have taken this oral tradition and instead of upholding the word of God, they have made it more important than the word of God to the point that they obey their tradition at the cost of disobeying God's law. And then he shows one example of this. He clearly states the fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. And then he shows the seriousness of the commandment with the fact that the death penalty was given to someone who reviled or cursed their parent. He then points out one of their traditions. It's a way that you could designate your wealth or property to be given to God. In Mark, we're told that this rule is called korban. But pay attention to what Jesus says the problem with this is. He doesn't say that there's a problem with traditions in general or even with this specific tradition of setting aside something to give to God. The problem is that the Pharisees use this rule in their tradition as a way to undercut and avoid God's command for a person to honor their father and mother. Look at the dialogue of verse 5. When the Pharisees have a situation where their tradition and the word of God are in conflict, they give authority to their tradition. That's Jesus' summary of his critique. In verses 6 and following, he says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is the problem. Again, it's not the fact that they have traditions or even the fact that they have sought to interpret and apply God's law. We'll always have to do that work of interpretation. But the problem is that they have been teaching their own tradition and interpretation 
as if it is the word of God. And when conflict arises between the two, they give more authority to their own tradition than to God's word, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. An immediate application for us to think about is Christian groups who have a similar idea of oral tradition, like Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. You may not know this, but both of those groups teach that God didn't just give the church his word written in Scripture, but that he also gave an oral tradition to the apostles, which the apostles then passed down to the bishops that they ordained all the way down to the present day. This is very similar to the way that the Pharisees understood their own oral tradition. And the official teaching of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy is that that oral tradition carries the same authority as the Word of God. That oral tradition includes things like the doctrine that Mary, Jesus' mother, didn't die, but that her body was assumed into heaven at the end of her life. Or the command that Christians must give veneration or devotion to icons, which are pictures of Jesus and dead saints. Or in Roman Catholicism, the belief that the Pope is able to speak infallibly when he speaks in a certain way. And that when he does, his words are equal in authority to the words of Scripture. All of those things are included in that oral tradition. And those churches teach those things as binding doctrines of the Christian faith with the same authority as the Word of God. Now, I know there are probably a lot of different opinions in here of Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. There are people who I dearly love in both of those traditions. I don't intend this to be a cheap shot at people outside this room. But many of you know that in evangelicalism, especially now, there is a draw to those traditions because of that perceived beauty and history and stability that they offer. And so I think it's important that we name that this is not a small issue. Jesus has harsh words for the Pharisees because of this equating of their own tradition with the word of God. And he clearly intends them to be words of warning for his people about following them. He says in verse 14, Let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He is warning us about following those who teach that human tradition has the same authority as the Word of God. But this isn't just a place to pat ourselves on the back because we believe in sola scriptura and then move on. We need to look in a mirror as well. I said that tradition in and of itself isn't a problem. We believe it is good to listen to the church throughout the ages, on how to understand and interpret God's word and how to order the church. We have a written confession of faith in this church that we believe is a faithful summary and interpretation of God's word. We do things like observe the church calendar. Your pastors wear robes. We have a piano during worship. We do these things because we believe that they are wise and good for us to do as Christians. But we need to be careful we need to be careful that we are never putting those things alongside the Word of God. 
A church is not an unfaithful church if they don't observe Advent or wear robes or if they use different instruments. Our traditions, even traditions we believe are wise and well thought out, must always be held in humility and they must always be subservient to the clear teaching of the Word of God, never over it. Before we move on, I think there's one more important application that we can make. Both of those applications are a little bit more at an institutional level, but I think there's also an individual level that we can look at. Whether we like it or not, we are products of the culture that we live in. We are influenced by our culture, and our culture can seep into our minds and our hearts with its own traditions and commandments. They're things that often sound obvious to us because they're the air that we breathe. One current one is that you should always cut toxic people or relationships out of your life. And there may be times when that is wise, but that can also be used to undercut God's command to forgive people in your life who have hurt you. Another might be the idea prevalent in our culture that you are guilty by association. That your associations automatically reflect your values and character and beliefs. Think about how easily that can undercut Jesus' command to befriend sinners and those who are far from God. Or perhaps the cultural command that if you love someone, you must affirm everything about them and their lifestyle. This so easily undercuts the biblical command to speak the truth in love, to confront a brother or sister in sin and call them to repentance and to come to Jesus. We could keep going with personal application and potential application. We are always in danger of setting our own commands, setting our own wisdom over and above the word of God. But Jesus is clear that God's word is the final authorities in our lives and in this world. And setting our own traditions alongside or above his word is extremely dangerous. For the Pharisees, this was no longer a subtle or accidental move. It led to complete hypocrisy, where they were honoring God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. May the Lord protect us and our hearts from that ever-present temptation. That's how Jesus first addresses the questions that the Pharisees pose to him. He doesn't address the substance of their question, but he addresses what is behind the question. But in verse 10, he turns back to, the an- to answer what they ask. Notice he doesn't actually answer the Pharisees. He turns away from them and answers the crowds and his disciples. He uses their question as an opportunity to teach the crowds and disciples what the true source of defilement is. He says it starkly to the crowds in verses 10 and 11. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then he gives further clarification to his disciples. Verses 12 and 14 focus on the Pharisees as blind guides, but in verse 15, he gives more clarity about this teaching of defilement. Look there with me. 
But Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. We need to understand that the Pharisees don't think that you should wash your hands before eating because they are worried about germs. This is not a question about microbes or germs. This is a question about the clean and unclean laws in the Old Testament. You know that Leviticus gives extensive teaching on what makes a person ritually unclean and then how they can become ritually clean again. Things that made them unclean were contact with diseases or dead bodies or eating the wrong kinds of food or touching someone else who was unclean because of those things. Those things would put you into a state of being defiled or impure for a certain amount of time or until you performed a task to return to a clean state. There aren't actually any laws for Israel as a people about washing their hands. There are laws for the priests about washing before they made a sacrifice, but the Pharisees' tradition had extended those laws to include washing to everyone. And so they are saying that Jesus' disciples are defiled or unclean because they are eating without washing their hands. What Jesus says in response is that they have the direction all wrong. It's not what goes into their mouths that defiles them or makes them unclean, but what comes out of their mouths. Peter also doesn't understand this, and so Jesus gives further clarification. He gives a bit of a ninth grade health lesson when he says what happens to your food after you eat it. The end result is that the things that go into your mouth come out of your body. Jesus says this to show that they don't have any lasting effect. But then he names the things that that come out of your mouth. Those things, he says, come from your heart, the core of who you are. Then he lists some examples. Notice that the list matches very closely with the second half of the Ten Commandments. Murder breaks the sixth commandment. Adultery and sexual immorality both break the seventh. Theft breaks the Eighth Commandment, and false witness and slander both break the Ninth Commandment. He then makes this clear statement. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I think the best way to understand what Jesus is teaching here is not to think that he is mocking the food laws in the Old Testament but it's to realize that he's doing something very similar to what the author of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember there he's talking about Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And he says that it was never possible for the blood of goats and bulls to take away sins. And the Israelites should have known that by the fact that they had to repeat the sacrifices year after year. What he's saying is not that the Old Testament sacrifices were pointless, but that if the Israelites actually thought that they accomplished the forgiveness of sins, then they were missing the point. 
Jesus is saying something very similar here. He's not discrediting the Old Testament food laws, even though they will go away under the new covenant. Remember, he's God. He created those laws. But he is correcting the thought that eating those things actually made a person unclean. What truly makes a person unclean, he tells us, is sin. Breaking God's law and practicing unrighteousness. Ritual impurity was always meant to point to heart impurity. And this is where we see the connection between Jesus' critique of the Pharisees' man-made traditions and this teaching on defilement. The Pharisees were using their own traditions as a distraction. They were using them as a way to lower God's requirement in his law. If someone came to them and asked, what do I have to do to remain clean and avoid defilement? The Pharisees were giving them a list of simple rituals and ignoring their heart. All you have to do is wash your hands. And in making this contrast, Jesus exposes the problem with ritualism. Rituals are not wrong. They're not simply an Old Testament thing. Christianity has rituals like baptism, the Lord's Supper, praying, reading your Bible, going to church. Those things are Jesus' idea, and they are woven into following him. But ritualism is different. Ritualism makes performing rituals the sum total of following Jesus. What do I have to do to follow Jesus? Ritualism answers, oh, all you have to do is get baptized, take the Lord's Supper, pray, read your Bible, and go to church. But Jesus doesn't just demand rituals. He demands all of you. Not just Sunday mornings, but your whole life. Not just a few actions here and there, but everything you do and your whole heart. At first glance, ritualism looks like this rigorous varsity approach to Christianity. But in actual fact, it is often a way to skirt around the true call of Jesus, a call that demands our whole hearts. And just like the demands of the gospel are cut short, the need for a Savior is also cut short. If the source of my uncleanness and defilement is that I've forgotten to do a few rituals, then what do I need to do to get clean again? Just start washing my hands or reading my Bible again? But if the true source of my defilement is the sin that shows up in my life but starts in my heart, then what do I need to do to get clean? I need someone to wash my sins away. I need cleansing, not of my hands, but of my heart. That is a much harder solution. And it's also a solution that you cannot accomplish. Jesus raises the problem of defilement here, but the rest of the gospel provides the solution. We heard this already in our assurance of pardon this morning. What is the promise of the gospel? Is it that Jesus will teach us how to work hard and clean ourselves up? No. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. 1 John 1 tells us where this cleansing comes from. He says, if we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, the uncleanness of sin is impossible for you to fix in yourself. But Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners. And he tells us that he will cleanse us from the inside out, not by the washing of hands or nine steps to live a better life, but by the cleansing power of his blood. Come to him to cleanse yourself. He is the only one who can do it. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have provided an answer to our guilt and to our shame and to our uncleanness that we have brought on ourselves. We thank you that that answer is not earned but is freely given in Jesus Christ. We pray that we would see in him not just a helping hand, but our complete hope, our complete life. Would we follow after Jesus? Would we find in him everything we need? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.